Maybe there's nothing else to do except hold each other's hands and and weep with each other. Can weep when we are here about a loss and a death at a young age and a death at any age, leaving behind people who love us. And weep also when people survive, knowing that it could have been other. It could have been other, and it could have been any of us, and it is all of us, sooner or later. Maybe that's really what we've, we've all done, is come here to be consoled in some way. Maybe the only word to talk about is consolation. It's just so hard to be a person. <laughs> That's a very unelaborate way of saying <laughs> saying the first noble truth. It's extremely hard to be a person in a life, in a body. That's actually what the first noble truth is about. That... Um, Sabam dukam, everything is suffering. It's in the middle of beauty, in the middle of wonder, in the middle of amazement. Everything is changing, everything is dying, everything ultimately gets lost. Everything is so fragile. And we go along not knowing it, you know. Someone said this morning uh, in the early precepts class about that last year was a really hard year. It, you know, for a person whose uh, great loss is yesterday or January 3rd or in the year 2000, that will be a very hard year. Well, this will be a very hard year. Last year was worldwide a startlingly bad year, as everybody has a visual image of it. It's amazing in a certain way how we go along um, not overwhelmed with how hard it is to be a person and wanting to be one, you know? Um, this might be a completely silly thing to say, but do you remember the opening of Annie Hall? There's a voiceover dialogue where Woody Allen is telling a joke about two women, he said, sitting on the balcony, the porch, of a hotel and complaining about the hotel and saying the food in this hotel is so bad and the other one's saying yes and such small portions <laughs> and then the voiceover goes on to say life is so difficult and yet we want more of it 
We get up in the morning and we hope to be better. And we wish we had more. And we wish we could do it again. And we are signing up for grief every time we do that. And we want it. It's the most amazing thing. And we want so badly to not feel frightened. What will console us? I think about a lot. Someone asked just before about the precepts. Um, today was a precept morning, and 20 people came this morning to uh, practice precepts together, and seriously to practice them. I'll tell you what it's about so that this is a lure as well. Hopeful that you'll come next month. The precepts, which uh, the Buddhist precepts that we take, which are similar to the precepts or the guidelines for morality in every great spiritual tradition, are the five rules for lay people uh, that the Buddha taught as skillful ways to orient one's life. And I'll tell you them in a minute, but I want to tell you that the end of the precepts ends with a dedication. May these precepts be the cause for uh, liberation. And may these precepts be the cause of happiness. But we're talking about what's going to be the consolation. What do we do? What's going to sustain us? There's a certain way in which when we held hands this morning, I'm, I'm sure you felt as I did, if there's some way to infuse someone in our community who's frightened with our strength, we share it with them. If we could share it with the world, when we make a dedication of merit, we are sharing our strength with the world. If we could give it, we would. I think we're generous beings just by our nature. May these precepts be the cause for morality, I think is a way of saying that we are happy when we don't cause suffering. May these precepts be the cause of happiness when we are not adding to the pain in the world with our own confusion. I think we feel happier. I think it's some innate... Uh, impulse to care for each other that reflects itself in our readiness to take those <laughs> precepts and say, I do want to behave this way, reflects itself in our feeling of um, dismay and um, contrition when we don't behave that way, even accidentally. Don't you feel terrible when you hurt someone quite accidentally? doesn't make it better if it was an accident. Maybe it makes it worse. Because you think to yourself, where was I? You know, I know better than that. Maybe it makes it actually worse. How much better we feel when we can make amends for it, if we can. How the heart spontaneously provides us with a moral inventory. Um, 
I've come to really uh, respect that as a component of practice and be grateful for it as a component of practice. Uh, I find startled me in the beginning, but now I count on it. That if I make my mind quiet, um, it's as if I push a button on my computer that runs a special program that says, uh, now please print out an inventory for me of uh, where I haven't done things quite right so I could fix them up. Uh, do you notice that, that this is spontaneous kind of moral inventory? Not necessarily terrible things that I've done, but when I sit down, I begin to get quiet. Right away I think, oh, I forgot to phone so-and-so back. And I really meant to send a card to so-and-so. And yesterday when I talked to so-and-so, I should have talked one minute more, and I was a little bit rushed, and I let my own rush push me out of there. And I'm actually consoled to find, reassured and consoled to find, that if I forget, my heart will keep a record. As if I carry around a little, um, you know how people carry around those recording devices, people with tremendously uh, pressing businesses, and they can always click on the machine and say, call so-and-so and do this and that. You know, that uh, and then when presumably they get back to some place where they do their their command headquarters, wherever it is that they do their work, <laughs> they listen to their little recorder and then they make all those phone calls. I think we carry around our heart with us and then it writes down all those little notes for us to follow up on later. Call so-and-so, make amends, do this. I think moral inventory is part of our constitution, part of the makeup of the heart. So the question, what are the precepts, is we come together here in the morning and we chant precepts, we chant them back and forth. Um, would you like to do that? I'll tell you what they are first so you'll know what you're chanting. They are, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the precept to abstain from speech that causes harm, speaking in a way that is exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to abstain from using my sexual energy in a way that's exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to abstain from the word in Pali as intoxicants. Anything that confuses my mind so that I won't be able to keep those other precepts. I have understood that intoxicants in a much broader way than substances. There are certainly substances that confuse the mind, and uh, I think of each of us being uh, determiners of what substances confuse the mind. Um, I eat very little sugar, because if I eat sugar, I don't think straight. 
Sometimes I have a cookie before I go to sleep because I don't have to think straight when I go to sleep. <laughs> That's the mildest form of intoxicant. I tell you those because I don't know what, you know, necessarily tell you more than that about myself. I have other worse intoxicants. I gave up television about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. I had watched too much, and I felt uh, uh, I felt that my body wasn't doing well with uh, the information on the world situation coming in in that way. I mean, it's not that I've divorced myself from the world situation. I read the New York Times every day. I keep myself informed, but I stopped. I stopped watching television two months ago. In the beginning, it was a little bit hard. Uh, because you kind of think, oh, I could just check the news, but I don't. Um, last night, I, I gave myself special permission to watch the Olympics, because I thought, well, the Olympics, it's not like the news. Actually, I want to teach a little bit about the Olympics and, and what I talk about today, because the same news about greed, hatred, and delusion that's on the news is in the Olympics. Sad to say. So there's two things to teach about that. One is the sad news and that greed, hatred, and delusion. I guess there's one thing to say about that. That's the sad news. That there's a, the fact of life is that greed and hatred and delusion, the principal confusers of the mind, are on the news as well as in the Olympics. They are all over. And they're in me as well. And when I think about why the precepts are a consolation, is they're a consolation because if I say them, even if I continue to make mistakes based on unrecognized greed, hatred, and delusion, I console myself when I say out loud with other people, this is not what I plan to do. There's a possibility I'll do it less. So I think that everybody makes a decision for themselves what intoxicates them. Um, too much stimuli intoxicate me, talking too much. Um, if I don't sit enough, not enough quiet space, not enough Sabbath for the mind intoxicates me. I could forget that. Sometimes I think I'm so lucky to have the job that I do because I can't get too far from Mazafu. Um, keeps me more or less with a built-in contemplative space in my life. I have to sit down somewhere because I'm enough in the, co in the company of other people who expect me to sit down. <laughs> and then once I'm there, I have to do something. So. Maybe I constructed this life for myself in order to have that. So that's what the precepts are. And I, I, the early morning precepts class, we sit together quietly for a while, and then uh, I 
often say the precepts one at a time in English, just as I did, and then we sit quietly in between each one. And people discover often that it's a template through which um, they have a chance to allow their own um, morality uh, apparatus to move and um, check out what do they have to think about? What do I have to think about in my life? I might come in thinking when I chant the precepts this morning, it's probably going to come up for me about this and that. It might come up for me about this and that. I don't know. So, sometimes I think about the, uh, the mind as uh, having a, uh, being a, a kind of a search engine like Google. You know, that, uh, you know the search engine, you say, do you know Google, the search engine on the computer, where you say, tell me the information about this and that, and then it searches, and it comes back and tells you the information. I think the mind has the same sort of built-in Google. You sit down, and it searches out and tells you, here's a readout of what you have to address. So when we sit in, those, in that time in the morning, the mind does its readout. And then often we chant the precepts in Pali. And uh, then we talk about them. And often people talk about what comes up for them in their own sitting and uh, what came up for them as they sat in terms of an area that they would need to address. So, uh, in fact, they do, in a sense, a way to, uh, uh, stay out to the community. This is what I plan to address in my life. And what's so abundantly clear to us all, I think, um, is that um, it makes you so happy to do that. You know, it's not embarrassing. It's not embarrassing to confess that kind of thing in the context of friends who love you and who share with you an intention to manifest in the world with a benevolent heart. Who doesn't have that intention? We all want to do that. We all know that's what makes us happy. And we all know that we all keep making mistakes out of confusion. And so when we say, in essence, friends, I've made this mistake, but I don't plan to do it again, we feel so much better. We mean to be kind. I think we do. I think that that's why I started to do this whole practice. When um, I went on my first mindfulness retreat, it was a weekend retreat in um, San Jose in the spring of 1977. I went on my first long mindfulness retreat in the summer of 77, but went for a weekend the spring of 77, really didn't know a lot about it. My husband had gone on retreats before and pushed me to do it. It was in a private house. There were uh, one teacher, probably 20 people sitting. We sat, we slept way close together in two rooms, I think, on mattresses on the floor, pushed to very close together. 
everybody dressed and undressed right next to their mattress. I was a little embarrassed and uncomfortable, a room full of strangers. And, um, so we slept in a room, in two rooms like that. Um, we sat in what must have been a garage reconverted into a little meditation hut in the backyard, too small, too hot, too cramped together. Uh, I had no clue about what we were really meant to be doing. I'd never sat in this peculiar way before. My knees hurt, my body hurt, my back hurt. I spent most of the time counting the hours until <laughs> it would be over, rehearsing speeches that I would tell my husband about uh, how mad I was about that he hadn't prepared me or told me really what it was about, and that it was obviously completely about nonsense. <laughs> and two months later, I was on a plane going to Washington State to a two-week retreat. Um, and I have not stopped going. That was the summer of 1977. And I think that the, um, I think that what did it was on the last afternoon of that weekend, I was doing some walking meditation in the living room of that house in San Jose, and uh, walking back and forth in front of the uh, fireplace. And on the mantelpiece, there was a uh, redwood burl, you know, the kind of redwood burl that you buy at street fairs and at farmers markets and in national parks and polished redwood burl that someone has burned in, uh, home sweet home and um, something sweet. Uh, sisters are friends forever. Uh, <laughs> So there's a redwood burl, and it said, uh, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I think I went back because of the redwood burl. Because I think we need to be very kind and console each other. We are all in trouble having been born. and most fortunate for a human birth. Paradoxically, those are two things that, that are central to Buddhism. Sometimes uh, um, seems like a kind of a gloomy um, religion. Start out, sabam dukam, everything is suffering. But it is. It is. Everything changes and dies, gets lost is lost to us, our youth, our health, our hopes, our dreams. Just I, if you think about it from that point of view of the lens, we spend a life accommodating to loss. At the same time, everything's getting born. It's so amazing, you know. Walk around here and there are baby deer out there and the bulbs are coming up again this year and at the right time making the right kind of a bulb. 
there was a the, um, there's a book by Brian Swim called "The Universe Is a Green Dragon." It's a wonderful uh, book. He's um, I think an astrophysicist. Very uh, beguiling writer as well. Talked about how we keep getting seduced into life because it's so interesting. You know? I read sometimes some of the uh, literature about people who die in complete equanimity. And I say, okay, this is it. I'm out of here. I, I want to die uh, not struggling and not fighting with it, but wishing I had another day. I want a wee bit more of the wishing I had more to last till the end. And I think there's something about saying, it's so interesting. Really, what's going to happen next? It's all a story, but it's such an interesting story. And what can I do in it to make it different for people? Maybe if I live another day, I'll be able to say something consoling to somebody else. Maybe I'll be able to hold another hand. Or someone else will hold my hand. And we'll have another moment of lovingness. I think that's what the precepts are about. That's a long answer to what are the precepts about. So that's what we do. We take precepts together. And we, by saying those precepts together, I think we mind each other that we all want so much to manifest out of a place of kindness. It's the only way. You know, in, in, I, I haven't seen it actually recently, but I remember, um, I'm pretty sure it was Gourmet Magazine, which, you know, it's, it's a beautiful magazine, I'm sure. This is not to say anything not good about Gourmet. Uh, and for cooks, it's a wonderful magazine, beautifully put together. But for a while, there was a little logo, I think, that went along with it, where I, I think talking about uh, preparing a beautiful home and a beautiful, beautifully prepared dinner as an art form, which it is. It is an art form. But there was a peculiar word. Uh, that They had a logo that I think said, living well is the best revenge. Remember that? Uh, and I never quite understood that. Revenge against what? You know? I suppose it was revenge against the, um, oh, the what of life, uh, the uh, incorrectness of life for being finite. It's all, all, um, the injustice of life of being finite. I guess revenge is what you have when an injustice has been done. That's what it makes it sound like. So living well is the best revenge against the, fi- the injustice of a finite life. That's not an injustice. It's just the truth of a finite life. You know? It can't be. I mean, you couldn't have a life unless it were finite and went on. I mean, there wouldn't be old people or young people or new people. And, I mean, there wouldn't be a life unless there were change. The whole phenomenon, the, the, 
Unless they were changed, there wouldn't be buds coming up again and bulbs growing again and new baby deer. Has to be changed and with it, loss and accustomed to loss. So maybe we could change that living well is the best revenge to living kindly is the best consolation. Well, living in love is what makes it all work. And then thinking about what keeps us from living in love all the time? What keeps us from uh, getting caught in our own collapsed mind around our own greeds or angers or confusions. What makes our own mind happy? I wanted particularly to talk about this today because how many people were here last week? Here last week. So this, were you excited about those two women who were about to go into two-year retreat? Did you like how joyful they seemed? Did you have a moment of uh, wishing that you were doing it? Mm-hmm. Two moments, really. Uh, I think what was so appealing to me, I'll just say this on behalf of all of us, maybe something was appealing different to everybody, but they looked so radiant. They just looked so happy and joyful and content. And the, the idea of a, of a renunciate contentment, which makes a lot of sense to me, um, the very act of becoming renunciate means I have enough. I don't need anything. That it's so unusual not to need something. Need just is just such a... Um, it's really what, what uh, on many levels, the, the, the experience of needing is uncomfortable, and the experience of needing sets up a sense of some person in here who is needy. It then sets up a story of the person in here who is needy that you have to feel badly for. And a whole dance happens around a feeling of insufficiency. Um, I have a gospel tape in my car that I play over and over again. Um, Loretta Lynn, who's a country singer, but um, singing a, a tape of gospel and uh, one of the songs on it is A Satisfied Mind. Do you know that? You search the world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. And then she goes on to say that uh, more precious than silver and gold and fortunes that come and go, uh, a satisfied mind has an enduring quality, you never lose it. Well, you can never lose it. can't be used up. So there's one phrase that, where she says, there's one thing I'm sure of, I'll leave this old world with a, a satisfied mind. And I think to myself, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to leave it with a satisfied mind. 
I've already said I want it almost satisfied <laughs> because I've already confessed that I think what I'd like is satisfied enough and liking it enough so I could say, well, it's kind of like when someone says, uh, can I give you an extra piece of dessert? And you say, no, no, I've really had enough. Thank you very much. Well, maybe a wee bit. <laughs> no. you know, so that lets you know that you really like the dessert. You know that. Um, so maybe I, I, I don't want it to be just like 50-50, stay and go, just the same. I want to like it a little better than finally I'm out of here. Um, I, I think I do. I don't know what's going to be when I get there. But when I think about that particular tape, about I'll leave this old robe with a satisfied mind, I want to do that, and I want to be in it with a satisfied mind at the same time. I don't want to wait till the end of it. I'm leaving. I think about what makes the mind satisfied. And the part of it is the, the, the fact of a of a heart that feels uh, what the Buddha would call the bliss of blamelessness. That comes back to what we were talking about, moral inventory. I think that we feel good when we don't feel we've hurt. Most of the religious practices I know, religious traditions I know, remind people at the end of their lives to really work on a moral inventory and make some uh, expression of um, sadness about anybody that they may have hurt. May I be forgiven? Anybody that I haven't forgiven, may I forgive them? So the moral inventory part the bliss of blamelessness, it's a great phrase. I think the mind and the heart get really tight about that. I think partly because I think about, well, if I'm not afraid really of um, some retribution, I'm not afraid of being punished for it, in some later time. I never worried about that, you know. I remember uh, I grew up in a tradition that has a, uh, uh, I'm still in that same tradition. It's a day of um, uh, really serious consideration of uh, transgressions in the year and a desire to express it and a wish to be uh, absolved of it and feel free of guilt. And uh, the sermon on that day, on Yom Kippur, was always very fiery. Um, and uh, when I was a child, and I had the sense of, uh, of um, retribution for it. And the, the, about the book of life and the book of death being open and our deeds being counted up. And, uh, the the uh, whatever clergy de delivered that sermon was very fiery, and it never frightened me at all. I I actually thought it was the uh, I thought it was the liturgy of the day, kind of like a dramatic production, like um, 
Oh, uh, what is it that they do on uh, Flader Mouse on New Year's Eve or something? It's just the liturgy of the moment. And uh, I looked at it. I, I, I actually rather enjoyed it as a dramatic production. And it didn't frighten me. Because I, I, and I, I still am not worried about what's going to happen afterwards. I'm not worried about my next incarnation. Maybe I should be, but I'm not. I'm actually worried about how badly I feel now if I don't, if I feel I haven't done the right thing. I think that the retribution is happening now. It's not going to happen in another time. There's a wonderful poem, it's a Rumi poem, but I don't remember it exactly enough to quote it now about, uh, now is what counts, it's not what, it's not what we're going to find ourselves in after we're born. This is the heaven or the hell that we construct for ourselves. So the bliss of blamelessness is a big part of it, of the satisfied mind. You say, phew, okay. But I think there's more than the bliss of blamelessness. The other half of it is not needing, the not needing more. One of the things that was so uh, uplifting to me about seeing those women last week is that they're ready to do a major renunciate act. They're going to go live in a place that they won't leave for three years. It's not a difficult place to live in. It's a house up at Lake Tahoe. Um, I've seen photos of it. It's, uh, it's in Truckee, actually. So you look out, you see hills and snow, and um, it's quite a nice house, and they'll each have their own room. And as they told you, someone will bring food supplies every week, and we can give them a gift at some point. Maybe when they go in, we'll put a basket every once in a while, and we'll say, okay, this is for the women. Would you like to do that? And then we'll send it off and uh, we'll buy uh, groceries for them for a week or something. But so they are relying on the gifts of other people to take care of their food needs and their rent needs. And they're giving up uh, the rest of their life and all the things that they do in this part of their life happily happily, in exchange for the opportunity to practice developing a satisfied mind. That's what they're doing. They're not practicing developing the capacity to be a renunciate. We could all do that, probably, for some period of time. Probably part of the allure is it sounds like a vacation. Sounds like a holiday, okay. Take me, the world is too much with us, is the beginning of one of the Shakespeare sonnets. Never sure which one it is. The world is too much with us, life piled on life. Don't you feel sometimes like it'd be okay to have a three-year retreat just to... But that's not why they're doing it. They're not going to get away from the world just to have a little bit of a respite. They're going there to have all that time to cultivate practices that develop a mind that stays satisfied, that doesn't reach out with longing every time something interesting comes by. Or that recognizes the mind reaching out in longing every time something interesting passes by and then decides what to do about it. 
the sweetest thing happened to me this morning. Because um, it, it isn't that desire goes away. At least my experience is that desire does not go away. But in the early morning class together, um, somebody was sharing the, uh, um, his experience of having gone to various concerts in the last week and how it raised up his mood. And uh, we were talking, I guess the conversation was up with the mood. Yeah, we were talking about how do you stay uplifted in a world where it's so troubling to see the amount of uh, greed and hatred and delusion that keeps taking over major pieces of thinking in the world. And so he was saying, one of the things that I'm doing is an antidote to skillful means is I'm doing music. I'm going to all kinds of concerts. It's picking up my mood. I think it's a very skillful means, by the way. And then he said all the concerts that he'd uh, gone to in the last week. And he said, and I went to a concert of blind boys from Alabama, 75-year-old men singing gospel. I thought, ah. And I thought, and, the, and he said some more things, which I missed, probably because I was thinking about uh, I was going to go to buy borders this afternoon and uh, <laughs> uh, get a tape of those of that group. But what if they don't have it there? And are they on CD? And should I get a tape or a CD? And, and you know, the, and the and the discussion went on. That you know, I caught myself back in. So maybe I missed thirty seconds of conversation, <laughs> and I was back. I'm happy to tell you I then forgot about the tape. It didn't invade my mind, but it, it took up a little bit of air time because the mind reaches out, <gasps> I need that tape. <laughs> then we went out for breakfast and he gave me the tape. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very sweet piece of magic, isn't it? <laughs> It doesn't always happen in life. But I was so happy about it, you know. <laughs> That's what the mind does. It wants. It's supposed to want, you know. If it didn't want, we wouldn't take care of ourselves. We wouldn't grow up. We wouldn't take care of our bodies. We wouldn't make relationships and alliances. We would never till a field, build a house, make a family do an artwork, we wouldn't create a single thing unless the mind said, oh, that's an interesting thing to do. I want to do that, and I want to have that. We really, it's in the DNA to do that. I really think there's an urge for life and that it's, it's kept alive by that's interesting, and that's interesting. I think we keep getting seduced into life. If we weren't, it would be too hard. Why would we heal from a grief if we weren't seduced back into life? There's something that says, okay, do a little more, get a little more. Even we get limitations. We get older, the body gets limited. We get sick in different ways, the body gets limited. Somebody told me a, a, an expression for that that I thought was so helpful. It's a person who had become limited because of physical changes that are more dramatic than the 
normal ones. And he said, I just keep changing what my definition of normal is. Because you know? I'm living my normal life. When I used to live my normal life, it looked like this. But now I live my normal life and it looks like this. And I just keep thinking of this, of this is my normal life. You know, somebody else looking at me. But I feel like this is my normal life. Anything else would make it difficult for me. This is not to acknowledge, not to not acknowledge that change has happened, but to not to fight with it. It's to not to fight with it. When the Buddha taught the second noble truth, tanha, the cause of suffering is craving, it wasn't really wanting, it isn't really desire, it's a mistranslation to say the cause of suffering is desire. Tana is more close to the word craving because we have desires. Blind boys from Alabama? Ah, I want that. Someone says, you know, there's a great new pizza place. Oh, really? There's there's all kinds of things. And we don't want to mind if someone said, here's a pill that will all be the same to you one way or another. You want it? Anybody here would take it? No. You want to hear what's a great new movie. Weren't you interested to see what what the uh, uh, selections were for the nominees for the Academy Awards? They said, here are the five. Didn't you listen? Yeah. I said, oh, yeah, that one. Uh-huh. This one I didn't see yet. I'll have to see that. We want to be interesting. We want not to crave. That's really the difference between it. Someone came and said, would you want this? You want this illness to go away? You want this limitation to go away? You want this particular good fortune to come into your life? Sure we do. Is it an imperative? Do you need to have it in order to be happy? Can you manage to have the mind relax without it being the way that you would rather have? It was so... um, um, pleased with Ajahn Sumedho's term for how he talks to himself, about, particularly about difficult situations, but about the mind state that's necessary to really meet all situations. He said, I just have to tell myself, this is what's happening. So he says, I say to myself, it's like this. And somehow, you know, I'm say, as I say it to you, I'm really hopeful that it has some sense of that transmission that I got from him when he said, I say to myself, it's like this. It's so clear when we know that it's like this for now. And that struggle would make it worse. If it doesn't have to be like this and we could change it, then we change it. If it has to be like this. Actually, it has to be like this now, always. And if change is possible, we can do that. But now is like this. The change will be in the future. If I... Um, heard on the on the 
television that I watched yesterday. You hear the dismaying news about the possible um, malfeasance in the judging on the ice skating. I heard that last night. That the night before, there had been a very closely contested um, pairs figure skating, and uh, the Russian team had won, and there was a general feeling that the Canadian team should have won, and. Uh, they spent all day yesterday reviewing tapes and really looks like maybe the Canadian team should have won. And then it looks like the scores given by three particular judges being identical in certain categories. It looks like they colluded beforehand and said, let's all give this score. And in fact, I heard that the, one of the judges said that she had agreed to give a certain score in return for which the other scorers would score on behalf of her country on Friday in the ice dancing. That's really awful, isn't it? It's terrible. But, not but, and. It's another permutation and combination of Enron. It's another permutation and combination of every possible story in the world of wanting more. Second place is fine. Enough is enough. There's a uh, cartoon in... Um, this week's New Yorker, where um, two folks are sitting in a cave, cave people. And it looks like a comfortable cave. They have a little fire going, and uh, they're wearing fur clothing, and they seem to be both smiling, and uh, they're drinking out of bowls, and they've got big bones lying right next to them, so you can see they just had an animal to eat, so they probably have enough food. They both have happy faces on, and uh, the man, he's actually relaxing back. He's just had this big meal. His arm is up in this expansive way, and he's, he's saying, someday I hope to have a whole complex of caves. There's always the mind is always looking to have more. You think to yourself, you only have one body. You can't live in more than one cave with one body. There's a Yiddish expression that I learned when I was a child that said, you cannot with one body be dancing at two weddings at the same time. <laughs> that, you know, that, that, uh, <laughs> that you don't need more stuff. I mean, there's a limit to what you can use. But not for the mind. That I read about there was recently some study done where they, um, they, they interviewed people with, in all kinds of uh, levels of economic um, wealth, you know, all kinds of levels of how much people had. And everybody they asked, how much more would you need to be really content? Would you really need more? 
everybody needed 20% more than what they had <laughs> on all the levels, which is really amazing to me. You know, that there's no limit. You, know, you can't say, I have enough. As a matter of fact, since you asked, now you reminded me, I'm giving this huge donation to Amnesty International just because you reminded me. Thank you very much. Nobody said that. Everybody said 20% more. It's what the mind does. <laughs> I have two cartoons of winners' podiums. The, the New Yorker is great. I don't know how I would teach without the New Yorker. <laughs> in fact, that there is a... First of all, you see people on the winning stand, winner's stands looking so wonderfully pious and mouthing the words. And I was watching yesterday and I was thinking, I don't think he's actually singing the words of the Star Spangled Banner. I think he's just moving his mouth. Because This is probably in a grumpy mood having heard the news about the malfeasance. Um, but it looks so patriotic and wonderful. And, Everybody else standing there looking so patriotic and wonderful in second and third place. So this this cartoon has no caption. It's a person standing in first place, person in second place, person in third place with the medals. Person in third place is just hauled off and hit the person in first place. That's what he feels like in his heart. He's standing there with a totally pious face, but he doesn't feel good in his heart. The other one, which is in, in some ways, it, it is funny. Obviously, I, I, I lost the one I'd cut out. I had to get this off the internet, but I remembered it. It's a Viking, and he's standing in first place, and he's wearing a Viking outfit, you know, one of those Viking outfits and with a Viking kind of helmet. We like those jokes in my family because uh, uh, both of my daughters have married uh, Scandinavian men, one a Norwegian and another one a Swede. So we kind of go for the Viking <laughs> jokes. And uh, both extremely mild-mannered men also. But anyway. We like the Viking jokes, so it's, it's the, and we have Viking hats for people for Halloween and all that. So there's a Viking standing on first place podium, and he's got a spear in one hand, and he's got a sword in the other hand, and both the spear and the sword are dripping blood. <laughs> and there's nobody in second and third place. <laughs> And I, uh, I showed this to my uh, nine-year-old grandson. He looked at it and he said, I don't get it, Grandma. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, and the older grandchildren, they got it, but because it was Eric, I said, I don't get it, Grandma. I said, well, look at this closely. I said, what this means is that he really, really wanted to win. <laughs> uh, the thing is that we all really, really want to win. For our whole life, we really, really want to win. We do not stop 30 feet short of the finish line and say, by your leave, you know, continue ahead of me, <laughs> and you come in first, you know. We have a competitive instinct, all of us. We want more than the other person. We want to win. We get aggressive about it. 
we get aggressive to the point of chicanery and malfeasance, it's not the best thing about us. And on the other hand, we have the capacity to do tremendous heroism on behalf of other people. Look at the range of human emotion. And I don't think it's just in some people they have this and in other people they have that. We, all of us, have a certain amount of I want to win and I want more and I need this. And we, many, many of us, would run into, would have run into the World Trade Center and tried to help people out. Many people do all kinds of variations of that. All kinds of variations of that. We do modest variations. We don't even give our whole life, but we go every other week and give platelets at the blood bank. We do something on behalf of other beings. Take three hours. You know you can do that if your health is good. You don't even decrease your own hemoglobin. You can go every other week and give platelets. You watch a video for three hours. I have a friend whose practice it is to go every other week on Wednesday morning to the blood bank. He watches a video. He gives platelets. And they take your blood out. I don't exactly know how it goes, but it goes out of you. They take out what they need and it goes back in you. And so you don't come out weak. So it's not like a blood transfusion. And that's just written into his calendar for every other Wednesday. And he just does that, gets to see a video and gets to probably sustain the life of somebody in some trouble. Because he's 50 years old, he can do that, his health is good. So you don't have to give your whole life, but he's doing that. We have this whole remarkable range of dedicate yourself to the other person and really want to triumph over the other person or take what's there or get more for ourselves. We can give away from ourselves and we can get more from ourselves. And I don't think that I don't think that it's uh, I don't think that it's part of our practice to want to be somewhere in the middle where we don't do either or imagine that we'll only do this. I think we're human beings and we'll have all these urges and impulses and they'll vivify us. They'll wake us up. But I hope that they'll wake us up in a way that allows us to choose. This is a skillful way to address my need to take care of myself. This is not a skillful way. I won't do it. How can I take care of myself in a way that I feel my mind is satisfied? I am satisfied. I have enough. Sometimes I think we should have a a posture of meditation where, and I notice that many people do, where they sit with their hands open like this. And when I first learned about that, I thought it was to be receiving, you know, maybe receiving some gift of insight. Uh I learned about hands open and up as part of my yoga practice, you know, to be in a receptive mode. Perhaps I'll have a new insight. I'd like to think about it now as I'll give out, I'll put my hands in this open and receptive mode so that I'm not holding on, so I don't need anything. 
It's a way of saying I have enough, don't need any more. I think that that's the key to be able to say I have enough. That's enough. The, you know, the, uh, we probably all, I don't know, if you grew up in New York City when, or a big city when I did, uh, when, when it was all right to do religious things in public schools, we uh, all uh, said the 23rd Psalm in assemblies. We did. It was an all right thing to do in those days. So we all said, my cup runneth over. So what does that mean, my cup runneth over? It means I have enough. I have enough. My friends who know the Hebrew better than I say that it actually means my cup is brimming. It's sufficient. Sufficiency is what we want. Really, say I don't need it. Mm-hmm. I was really struck watching the Olympics last night by Pika Street, who I'm sure really wanted to win, mm-hmm. but when she didn't, said, you know, it was a good race, I did my best, I'm satisfied, and that's my last race, I'm now moving on to the next part of my life. Yeah. And I think she was a beautiful example of what you've been talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really terrific that people got to see that, that somebody mm-hmm. who is a, a ter- tremendously terrific athlete Mm-hmm. was able to say, it's okay that I didn't win. Mm-hmm. It's a, I think it's a tremendous thing to be able to say about anything. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. One of my teachers said to me, um, it was his favorite mantra. He said, when I get into a place where my mind's in a knot, in my practice, in my sitting and in my life, I say to myself, it's okay. It's very consoling to be able to say, it's okay. Just the way it is. It's like Ajahn Sumedho saying, it's like this. That when we think it isn't okay, we're imagining that it could have been different now. But it couldn't be different now. Now cannot be different. Now is the result of everything that ever happened. Tomorrow can be different. It will be different. And it'll be different on the basis of how we do today. It's not all right how the world is. I really want to tell you in the last minute or so that we have together about an email that came uh, this morning. I'm reading my email very early this morning. just want to really tell you the website so you can go and find it. How many of you do that sort of thing? Okay. So ready, set, go. Get your pencils out. Here are, um, here's what you visit, http (coughs) colon slash slash www dot save biogems, that's all one word, save biogems dot org slash declaration dot asp. Sign the Declaration of Energy Independence. It will take you less than a minute. Then please forward this message to your family and friends. If millions of us sign the Declaration, the White House and Congress will be unable to ignore its message. www.savebiogems.org slash declaration dot ASP 
transfer to the National Resource, National Resource Defense Council, NRDC. This is the, yeah, this is the National Resource Defense Council. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh? Yeah. Do you want to tell everybody your name? Susan. Susan. And also, you spoke about saving people's lives, and John said it's my life, so that I like it. You know what, also, Susan, I'm very glad that your physical life was saved. I'm very, very glad that your physical life, and John as well. I'm also very grateful that you shared this last piece because I think you saved your own life afterwards with that moment of compassion, that our own heart and its ability to really feel sad, really compassion for people doing a terrible thing like that, is what saves us from the, from the pain of not being able to do that. You know, when we forgive people because we see clearly that they couldn't be otherwise, we think we are doing them a favor, but we are doing ourselves a favor. It's an amazing thing to have a heart that can forgive that fast and that immediately. I think that that's the thing that I feel very grateful for being able to have. It's an incredible thing. That's why I think uh, I said earlier and didn't uh, finish it, so maybe we can finish with saying it. It's very hard to be a human being and it's amazing to be a human being. And it's very hard because we have to deal with all these perishable bodies and minds and relationships, and perishable worlds. It's tremendous and 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 uh, no end of uh, no end of desire. And we can do it. We get up again. We try again. We forgive, we're compassionate, we're kind. We have the capacity to reach out and hold each other's hands and take care of each other, even that we're all of us in trouble. We're all of us in trouble. You look around, you know, we are all of us in trouble. Some of us in more obvious, immediate trouble. You know, we, we, we get a terrible diagnosis or someone with us or who we've loved isn't suddenly with us again. And, we're in the middle of a really dramatic moment in our own life of awareness of trouble. It's more clear. But the rest of us are not home free. Everybody's in trouble. 
Everybody is working as hard as they can to keep themselves going in this life. And it's so heroic that we get up in the morning and do that again, every day. And I think we do it because out of love, I think it's the people who love us that call us out of our beds. And the fact that we love back that calls us out of our beds. And that this whole amazing process of life calls us back into it. Like continually being seduced into the dance again. And then wanting to keep doing it. And tripping. (laughs) And picking up. No, actually not picking up. Having someone give us their hand so we can get up. So if we sit again, let's sit again for one more minute. Do give somebody your hand. We never did. We never did. Are you ready to do it? Huh? We'll do it, but instead of the normal form of doing like this, we're going to do it in this new form, which will mean we're doing it together. Here we are, holding each other's hands. We'll do it call and response. Non-harming, non-exploiting, non-harming or exploiting by how we speak, by how we... um, use our sexuality, express our sexuality, express, use our sexual energy. That's the right way to say that. And keeping our minds clear. You do it back to me. Panatipata, Vairapmani, Sikapadam, Samariyami Adinadana Vairatmani Sikapadam Samariyami Kamesu Michachara Vairatmani Sikapadam Samariyami Musawada Vairatmani Sikapadam Samariyami Sura Mareya Majja Pamadattana Vairatmani Sikapadam Samariyami May these precepts be the cause for morality. May these precepts be the cause for liberation. May these precepts be the cause of happiness. May the energy of our practice and the merit of our practice be on behalf of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.